Hi, and welcome to Must Talk About Nothing, a show about movies, music, and more. As always, I'm your host, Grant Ingram, and if you want to interact with us, there are links in the description where you can do that. I did the little YouTube finger point thing down there, um, and we're on pretty much everything. We're on Instagram at Must Talk About Nothing, on Twitter at MTAN Podcast. We've got a Discord. We've got a website, which is musttalkaboutnothing.wordpress.com. We don't do a whole lot with that, but it exists, and... As always, joining me on this very special occasion, it is my friend, my enemy, Grant Skillen. How you doing, Grant? I am well. How are you? You sound like Stitch. I don't know what that means. From um, Lilo and Stitch. Have not seen that. That's depressing. You just sounded like it for the one sentence. You don't need more, but he's like okay. a little alien dude. Um. <laughs> Anyway, today we have a very, very, very special interview for you. Gordimer Gibbons, Life on Normal Street creator, Mr. David Anaxagoras. So, um, I, do you prefer, like, do you prefer Dave or Mr. Anaxagoras? Dave, Dave okay. <laughs> I mean, you can call me Mr. Anaxagoras if you want. It, it always sounds strange to me. Okay, Dave's good with me. I um, I just had it had people do both, so I have whatever you're comfortable with. I'm amazed that you are pronouncing it correctly. I um, I, I was worried honestly that I that I wasn't. So no, a lot of people can't say Dave, so getting it <laughs> right the first time is. And that way, Dave get in a recording. So yes, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I was really hoping you'd want to go by Dave or David because I, I thought we were maybe saying it correct, like Anaxagoras. But yeah, the the only people who really get it wrong are um, classics professors who think they know how to pronounce it. They say Anaxagoras because the uh, the Greeks put the accent all at the end, Anaxagoras. Socrates is how you actually say Socrates name but all the classics professors put the accent at the beginning of the names so the weirdest thing is just to hear somebody say my name and think they they're clever and they know already how to say it because they had ancient greek in college or something and i have to listen to anaxagoras and there's just like there's no sag in my name my name does not sag (laughs) but that's my problem it almost sounds like they're just doing it to try to seem smarter than others. Well, I think they're used to it. I mean, if you've had any exposure to the name, I guess that's where you hear about it. But even people who've, you know, studied, Anaxagoras is an ancient Greek philosopher, but he's not like up there with the, the big names, story of my life. So, you know, he's... Uh, He's famous for being exiled, basically. Hmm. I guess there are worse things to be famous for, but I, I can't yeah. think of very many. Uh, so. Yeah. so how did you get into writing? Was there something in your childhood that really influenced you into wanting to get into it? <clears throat> I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to make films and I didn't really understand that there was a division of labor. You know, there was a writer, there was a director, there was a special effects department. I just wanted to make movies. Uh, and when I was, uh, and at the time, when I was very young, and of course, you know, 
Star Wars was it for me. Uh, 1977 changed a lot of lives for people my age. Um, I just wanted to make um, science fiction movies, special effects, space, aliens. Um, but I, you know, these are the days before you had uh, <clears throat> basically a whole movie studio in your pocket on your iPhone. Um, if you wanted to actually make a movie, you were shooting on eight millimeter or 16 millimeter. You actually had to have physical film. You had to have a camera. You had to process it. It just wasn't something that I could afford at all ever. So I um, just started writing the scripts to the movies that I wanted to make. And I was like in third grade, of course. So I was writing, you know, very clever James Bond spice booths on paper that I stole from school. You know, the, the paper you practiced your cursive on, I don't know if they still have it, but it had like a, you know, a, a dashed line and a solid line. And, and uh, it was really pulpy and, and crappy and fell apart very easily. Um, so I, I wrote my first screenplay on that. Um, and I didn't really think of it as writing. It was just part of the movie making process and kind of a substitute for like, I guess if I could have, I just would have just blundered ahead and, and shot something on film without worrying about a script. Um, later in the fifth grade, I got a toy typewriter that typed in all caps. And it was like the best thing ever. It really upped my game. So I wrote another script on that. Um, so it's just like always been a part of my life, whatever I've thought I wanted to do. It was just the writing part of it. Um, was in the mix and of course i wrote for song that it just became the writing became the the uh, end in itself um and i kind of went <laughs> eventually went all the way back around to um putting stuff on film but that took a while wow so you've just been you've been writing your whole life and it, it wow basically I, yeah that's yeah I, I, I picked it up like last year. <laughs> I feel like I'm <laughs> behind. Um, Are so, there any of these third grade James Bond level film uh, still around? I don't, I've always suspected that like, you know, mom has it stashed somewhere in the attic um, to embarrass me with at some point. Um, but I, I think if she hasn't brought it out yet, it's probably not actually, uh, it, it doesn't exist. I I did not share it with uh, my family. Um, I think on some level, I, it just felt like a very private thing to me. And I didn't really, um, I wasn't a show off kind of a person. It was, it was always something I was um, practicing in private, I guess. Um, I think there's like two kinds of people in the world. They're either practicing in front of everybody and making a fool of themselves and having a great time, or they're, you know, torturing themselves privately and, and they'll never get it right. And they're just sure it's awful. And, um, <clears throat> you know, a writer. So, uh, they, she may not have it cause I don't think I really wanted her to know it existed. Um, of course, once you actually have a show on TV, the game is up, people know, you yeah. know, it, it does become a lot harder to hide. It, it does. So speaking of that, that show on TV, so what, what was the process for, for Gortimer? Like how, how did that come about? Wow. Um, it, it was crazy. I feel bad because people ask me, 
and they used to ask a lot, you know, in, in terms of like, what they're really asking is how do I break in? Like you broke in and there's actually just, there's no way to copy somebody's uh, approach to breaking in. Cause it's every time you hear a story, it's like completely unique uh, to them. There's, you have to sort of like back up and take ver a very broad uh, view of it. Um, and still like some very broad principles in order to get anything of value out of it. Um, but I, it, there's no way I could have ever predicted the path. Amazon, there was just like some very wild, uh, it was kind of an untamed wilderness. And they had a, they started a, a sort of a, a crowdsourcing project for feature films where you could upload your script and um, anybody, you'd get a page and your script would exist on Amazon's page and you, anybody could attach themselves to that uh, in terms of like they could make a trailer for it as sort of an audition to be the director. They could rewrite your script. Um, you still always retained uh, credit, but anybody could just come along and, and do a rewrite or a rewrite of the rewrite. Um, the thinking being like, you know, that old saying more cooks in the kitchen is always better. So <laughs> the idea being somehow that all this, this mad stew of creativity would uh, make something happen. And they were giving away ridiculous amounts of money. People would vote on the scripts they like and Amazon rewarded people with um, just sacrilegious amounts of money every quarter or so. And uh, there was a lot of criticism of this, of the whole system um, from a lot of writers and professionals because they were basically like getting a indefinite option on your work when you submitted. It wasn't under the WGA. It was just, uh, it, it was totally new ground and no one knew what to make of it really. Um, so that sort of went through a cycle and then they kind of did Amazon Studios 2.0 where they calmed things down a little bit. You still, you could submit your work, but people couldn't attach themselves to it. People would just uh, uh, read your script and comment on it and, and rate it. And then Amazon would uh, eventually make an option, option something based on taking that stuff in. So um, at the time I had written like, you know, I had been writing for maybe seriously writing screenplays, feature films for maybe 10 years and including uh, three years in grad school. I got my MFA at UCLA in screenwriting. And I was like, this just is, I felt like I had turned a corner. I had written like the best script I was ever going to write. I'd written like the most Anaxagorean script I was ever going to write. Like I felt like if something didn't happen with the stuff I was writing at that point, it just wasn't going to happen because I was really happy with the way things were going uh, with my writing. And I thought, okay, I give up. I'm, I'm going to just, I'm going to write a novel or something. I think at the time I wanted to do a, a choose your own adventure type novel um, with some open source software or something. Uh, that was my crazy idea because I was like, this screenwriting thing is just not paying off. And I've, I've done everything I know how to do to get it to work. 
and then Amazon uh, opened up to not just feature films, but taking um, TV pilots. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have one last hurrah. I'm going to quit. But just for me, I'm going to write the ultimate feature film and put and dump everything in it that I like. It doesn't even have to make sense. It's just for me. And I'm going to send that to the Nickel Fellowship. And then I'm going to write the one TV pilot idea that I've ever had that's just always been kind of vaguely stewing in the back of my mind. And so before I quit completely, I might as well get that out of my system. And, and then I'll send that to Amazon. I'll never hear from those turkeys. It's just something I'm doing for myself, no expectations, and it'll be done. And then I'll go and I'll write novels. And of course, they screwed up my plans because they called me up. Uh, the, the feature script was a quarterfinalist. And then Amazon called me up. I submitted July 4th. 2012, they called me up July 30th and said they wanted to option my TV pilot. And I had written it in about, I started writing it in May. Um, so May submitted in July, optioned by the end of July. So it was like, uh, you could say it was like, it happened fast, but also it took 10 years to get to that point. But I think once you once you're in the place where it's right and it's ready to go, it feels effortless. Like once you're actually there, I was like, oh, it doesn't feel like banging your head on the wall anymore. It's like, you don't, I didn't have to try so hard. I just had to just chill and wait for my moment. The idea was like, I just had to be ready for when that moment showed up because I was ready to write that script. I didn't have any more than a vague idea, but I was ready. And, uh, you know, th that exact opportunity isn't going to show up for everyone. There's not always going to be an Amazon that uh, has an open call for scripts, but that, that sort of unexpected opportunity or that new opportunity is going to crop up in different ways for everybody. And you just have to, while you're in a holding pattern, you just need to sharpen your, your tools while you're waiting. Um, so that when the opportunity shows up, you can jump on it. And um, there's <laughs> there's just no telling what that's going to look like. Um, but fortunately for me, it just happened to be the the way in. So, ten years between the between starting as a writer and getting picked up. What like did you just write, or did you have like a day job, or like? Oh, I had a day job. I had a day job and I didn't even quit my day job when I got optioned. I, I was in uh, Orange County. It was about 75 miles away from um, the actual studios. So it was a bit of a commute. So I could, I could get there for the really important stuff, but I had a day job and I was, an option is not a career. It's, it's not time to quit and, and move to LA just yet. So I held, held on to the job for as long as I could. Uh, um, and I wrote when I was writing during those years, I was working full-time, going to school part-time. I got a, 
uh, my bachelor's degree in child development, I was a preschool teacher and um, worked in early childhood education all during this time. So I slowly got my degree in child development. And then um, I did leave for a couple of years to go to uh, film school. And then I came back and worked full time. And there were times when I wasn't writing just because life and because the job was overwhelming or whatever. But when I did write and I tried to write, um, I wrote at night and I was very used to just struggling to stay awake while I was writing. And sometimes I would, I would be writing and then I'd, I'd wake up and look at the screen and like I had fallen asleep with my finger pressed down on a key and like the whole screen is just J, 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 J all the way down, you know? Um, so there was, there were long nights um, and um, I was very tired for a lot of the time. Um, but that's, that's what I was doing was uh, just trying to balance things out um, and keep at it. Obviously it paid off, right? Um, yeah. Thank goodness it did. It doesn't always for, for everybody. And it, and uh, it's, it's, it's just cyclical. It's always ups and downs. Um, but I was glad finally that it, that it did. Yeah. So, so you said you'd always had the idea for, for the pilot. Yeah. Like, how did it look different when you wrote it than what we ended up seeing finished product? Um, it was always sort of, a, um, you know, the idea in your head is always, it, it, it's ve- it's a, it's just like this cloud, but it seems perfect until mm-hmm. you actually try to get a hold of it, and then it's a bit slippery. Um, so I had just always wanted to do a sort of um, <clears throat> an anthology type of show with the same characters, like it would would be sort of literate, like uh, a collection of short stories but it wouldn't necessarily be different characters every time like the twilight zone. And I just wanted to sort of fashion it over shows that I had grown up with and really enjoyed um, sort of uh, there was like a wave of like quirky small town shows of like twin peaks uh, picket fences was a favorite of mine. Um, There was uh, uh, Northern exposure um, and this was kind of the prestige TV for its time. Um, and then there was, uh, uh, younger, uh, skewing things like, uh, um, the adventures of Pete and Pete on Nickelodeon, which was just a huge favorite of mine. Cause it was one of the few kids shows that did not talk down to kids at all. It just felt, it was really quirky and strange, but it, it, um, you know, it wasn't a goofy sitcom. It was single camera, which it was just way advanced for its time. Um, and then there was Erie, Indiana, which I was a big fan of, which was kind of for kids. And um, just all that was kind of floating around in my mind. I was like, I wanted a point of view character who was just in, who, who's just in, it's just as average and normal as could be. He wasn't like secretly a wizard he didn't have secret superpowers. He wasn't a rock star, but nobody knew, you know, there was this thing going on with Disney where every um, kid on TV, like was really special in some way. And, I, and there was like the message 
I felt like I was getting from them was like, you're nobody if you're not secretly a rock star or, you know, you're actually a wizard, but nobody knows. And it's just like this, it, it, it was like every single time it was like they were, and it's just, just this wish fulfillment thing that I was like, what do you do if you're just like a normal kid and you don't have these powers, which is everybody like, right. how do you relate? What is life? Um, what if your superpower is just empathy? What if you, you just really love your friends and are trying to struggle day to day, making sense of the world. It's the world that seems weirdly bizarre and magical and like not a good kind of magic, like not the magic of childhood, but just like just weirdly unjust sometimes um, or tempting in a bad way. And if I felt it was a good metaphor for coming of age, for growing up, you start to see a bigger part of the world that you haven't seen before. And reality kind of becomes weirdly stretchable and plastic. And um, those are just the sorts of ideas that were floating around for me when I wanted to write this. And so I didn't really have anything concrete, like, who the characters were or, you know, Mortimer's name or um, any of the specific concepts that made it into the pilot. I just had this general sense of the kind of world I wanted to play in. And so writing the pilot was basically bringing that down into the very specific choices. So to answer your question, it looked very different, okay. but it still kind of inhabited that same space that I wanted to play in. And that that space is one of my my favorite things about it. It it feels like so. I I was a late comer. I I started watching. I guess I was about thirteen. So I'm 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 out of the I'm out of the age range. But I just kind of fell in love with the characters and um, and it, one of the things I really loved was how it it felt like they were real people. Like I, they, these were interactions I had with my friends. Except I didn't have the imagination or the the weird frogs or whatever that was going on. And um, especially in later episodes, like it, you speaking of not talking down to kids, like depression, like I, I was not expecting that coming in towards coming in a TVY7. Um, it's just one of the things I always loved about it. We um, thanks. It's uh, it's always great to hear. And I still get letters and I, I love that the show is still alive and people of all ages write in. And like grandparents confess, like, I was just watching this with my grandkids, but I really enjoyed it. I was like, that's okay. You don't need permission to enjoy it. Uh, I never wrote it as a kid's show. I never thought to myself, this is just a kid's show, which I think is what a lot of, was the approach of a lot of what was going on at the time, was that, pe that people were giving themselves permission to be crappy and slack off uh, because it was just a kid's show. And um, that's something I really bristled at. Um, and for me, I just wrote for myself. This was just a show that I wanted to see for myself. And, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily, um, that you had to be a certain age to enjoy it. And Amazon kept actually pushing the age lower just for, I don't know, marketing purposes. I don't know. They, that so it was like the least of my concerns was like who they were advertising to. So you just set out to create a show for kind of everybody and it, yeah, they marketed it towards kids. Well, I was like, I'm going to create a show for me. This is what I want to watch. 
And I hope, uh, and because it stars kids, they assume that it's a kid show, um, but it's a family show for, and a family is, includes youngins uh, and grandparents and everybody in between. So um, it, it never to me, it never occurred to me that um, it was just for one particular age or another, but they, they, I don't know. I guess they have to decide those things when they're um, thinking of, you know, make a poster or categorize it on the website or, or what have you. Right. Yeah. Huh. Well, um, so it ran for two seasons or I, I don't, it was, it was two seasons, right? I, I know they split part one Nobody and two. Understands. <laughs> right. Well, it was definitely two seasons. Um, the second season was sort of split, um, but not into a season three. And I think that was mostly so they wouldn't have to give uh, anybody a raise in the middle of season two. If they still called it season two, then nobody got a bump. If they called it season three, they might have to pay somebody a little bit more. So I, I think that's what Amazon lawyers decided. Um, a lot of decisions about TV shows actually nothing to do with the creative side of things. It's just all the machinations of uh, who, who do we sell it to? How can we sell it? How can we not pay people any money for it? That's basically what those are. So that's that's why you have like a 24-episode season two and a 12-episode season one so yeah, it ran for three seasons yeah, for all intents and purposes. Yeah, it officially ran for two, technically three. <laughs> I think narratively, it's it's three. I think there's definitely a shift in the middle of the second season. Um, we always thought of it as a third season, just structurally. You you can really feel that watching it too. It it, it kind of starts to mature, yeah. um, and and not like the the. You, you know what I mean. The rest of the sure. seasons weren't, but it just kind of grew up. Um, so was I, the reason I was asking is it, was it planned? Is that how you knew it was going to end? Or did they tell you, look, you've got one season and you had to kind of figure it out? We, uh, in my mind, I wanted to do three uh, seasons or three years of middle school and be done. I didn't want to do high school drama. I didn't want to do, you know, I, I didn't want to do love triangles and, and boyfriend, girlfriend stuff. And some of that snuck in toward the end. Anyway, I, we tried to keep it at a minimum, but um, that just wasn't what I, you know, that stuff, it's, it's all over the place. If you want to see it, you can see it. Um, I wanted to do something that was focused on, uh, the friendships, because I didn't see a lot of that. Um, on TV, I didn't see like real strong, especially boy-boy friendships. And I didn't see friendships that were uh, positive. It was always like uh, kids doing naughty things and getting in trouble. It was always like a bond over like badness or something. Um right. I just wanted this to be um, stand by me was kind of another model for us. That was kind of my North star 
um, you know, the last line of Stand By Me is, you never have friends again like you did when you were 12. And that sort of what the show was all about in the end. So that's what I always aimed for. And I didn't feel like we could stretch, we could stretch it to 13 or 14, but I didn't think we could go much beyond that. So there was always sort of this unspoken, unwritten agreement, I think, between me and Amazon that it would be um, basically three seasons and, and done. And it was such an incredibly difficult show to produce. I think Amazon was glad to call it a day at the at the end. Just on a technical level, it's hard to, you know, you only have kids for a certain amount of day of the day uh, to shoot with certain a number of hours. And every episode was its own sort of mini movie, which meant we had to do, you know, we had to build all new sets and find new locations and have a whole, you know, we had a core cast, but we needed a lot of other actors. So just on a filmmaking um, level, it, it was very demanding. And then they were very picky about the scripts and the um, uh, just getting an idea approved. It was just like uh, we were very protective of the show and and uh, what the and what the show was representing. So um, there was just a lot of effort that went into it. So I think we <clears throat> we did everything we could do to make a great three years. And I wanted to go out when it was good and not go out when we had just run it into the ground or run the wheels off it, like so many shows do. Don't pull a Mythbusters. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, basically. So, um, yeah, and the kids were aging very quickly. Um, so, and it just wouldn't have been the same show anyway if if we had um, kept going. And I get that question all the time, like, why did it get canceled? Can we have another season, please? People ask. People ask me, and it like it's playing for the first time in like India or something. So. People don't realize um, that the kids have have grown quite a lot since the show was since they shot the show. There's just no even if you wanted to, you know, it would be like a a Brady TV special. You know, it it, it would be a reunion show, and it just would not be the same. Um, like the new Leave It to Beaver. Totally, yeah. It, you, you can't you can't recapture that that exact uh, same magic. It would be something very different. I remember when I when I first got into it, I was looking like I, I became obsessed, right? Because I was thirteen, and thir- thirteen year olds become obsessed, and I'm like, they're all eighteen. They don't look yeah. eight. How, how are they? And so now at eighteen, I'm like, wow, I don't look young anymore. It's, it's, well, yeah. I'm glad we started with them as young as they were. The temptation is always to hire actors that are a little bit older. Um, especially because the older they are, the longer you have them, you can legally have them on set and work with them. Um, and they have more stamina and they're, they're more mature. And um, it's, it, it can be hard to find kids that, that can handle the job, especially something uh, like this show, which um, demanded a lot of them emotionally um, and acting wise. Um, it wasn't, you know, a happy little sitcom all the time. Um, but they did, they aged very quickly. And there was a period of time when we shot the pilot 
you know, this was part of Amazon's weird system where the pilot uh, was put up on the Amazon website for everyone to view and vote on, not vote, but rate. And then Amazon would decide based on that feedback if they were uh, going to give the green light to the whole series. Um, and so they would put up a batch of pilots and I don't remember who else was up with us, but we got great. <laughs> we got phenomenal feedback. A lot of great comments came in. People loved it. Um, but the problem with that was that it put another year between when we shot the pilot and when we started the series proper and we lost a year of time and the kids are getting older um, right. during that time. And, you know, I always felt panicky about that. And I would just sort of rail at Amazon. Don't you realize this puberty is going to ruin everything. We, we have to get moving. <laughs> yeah. So how involved in like the, the non-writing process were you like, were you on set or? Yeah. Um, as co-executive producer, which is kind of what you get when you're the creator. Um, but you have absolutely no other experience in, in TV. Um, they're all the time and it's, there are long days and it's a great job and working in TV is, you know, it's a dream, but they are very long hours and there's just a lot going on and a lot of decisions, tiny, tiny decisions to be made. And it's funny, you learn a lot about communication because if anybody can misinterpret you, they will. <laughs> and if anybody can possibly make the wrong decision, they will. Um, and there were all a lot of really smart, fantastic, creative people involved in the show. And I just was so lucky we got the people who we got to be um, involved in the show. Everyone from the costume department, props, makeup, uh, casting, uh, just, just phenomenal crew, phenomenal actors, but it's a lot, and it was a little show, but it was it was a lot, and everyone needed um, it it was a different kind of show, so everyone needed to know, especially at the beginning, like we were defining the show as we were going, and there really hadn't been a show like this before. Um, so it it took a lot of of um, just being there and being available to answer questions and, and to kind of steer it and guide it. But yeah, on set writing and being on set and um, then just being in the editing room and just being everywhere at the same time is basically what you have to do. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It, it was great. It was very collaborative. It kept me very busy and it was very hard to, um, it was very hard to get used to not doing that on hiatus to just be calm and get used to the silence. That became a very foreign thing. It's very strange. Mostly though, my days were in the writing room and trying to get the scripts out because we needed basically a script a week. Yeah. Yeah. So was it just, was it just you in the writing room or were there? No, we group? had a, a, a room full of writers, maybe six 
six others or so. Yeah, because you can't, there's just too much to do on a series um, to have, for me just to write it. If I could, and if I were going to do another show, I think I would write the scripts in advance um, before shooting. And and some showrunners are, are doing that. Um, it depends on the show, but, um, you know, that it takes away opportunities for other writers um, to come on a show and be part of a writing room. So it depends on the show. It depends on your approach and, and what you're doing. But that's something that I would, uh, and depending on the idea, but um, I, I can see the benefit of that as far as uh, a doing a, a very sort of idiosyncratic type of show. You, you would need to, if you wanted to just um, to have one writer, you would have to get the scripts written before the show shot. Uh, even a frame. So I may have missed this while I was gone, but do you have any funny stories from the set that you can share? <laughs> Probably on the spot, it would be tough to think of them. Mostly it was, um, <laughs> mostly it was a lot of hard work and stress. Um, so it's not like um, we just all hung around and had a, I mean, we did have a good time. But um, I don't know what to tell you. I, I wish I did. I, I'll have to be more prepared with funny anecdotes from the set next time I do something like this. Something. Yeah, I kind of put you on the spot a bit. <laughs> no, that's all right. I don't think I've ever really been asked that before, actually. I mean, the kids were heavy into pranks. Um, they, they had to be occupied. They had to do something. So that, there was always a prank war or something going on. Um, I never really got hit. Uh, with a prank and some people did not see the humor in it um most people did not see the humor in it um but there was always you know there's always somebody walking around with with uh, clothes pins hanging off the back of the shirt and completely oblivious or, or something um <clears throat> something like that but uh i sorry I, i'm sure i'll think of something you know tonight when i'm crawling into bed i'm like oh i I should have shared that one funny anecdote. That's that's how it always is, right? You even like arguments or whatever, you always think of the perfect line right after it's over. Especially arguments, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I did put you on the spot a little bit, so that's, that's right. bad on that um, one. But yeah. yeah, I don't want to give the impression that uh we didn't have any fun, but it was, you know, it was a job. So there there was there was the time, let's see. The, the two funniest things that happened were they built a prop. It was a big, um, and these are the kind of you had to be there things. You get a little punchy when you're on the set for 16 hours or whatever. But they they built a, uh, it, it was like a chalkboard on wheels, and they were wheeling it into the uh, into Mel's attic set. And, of course, they had built it too big, so they couldn't get it into the, through the door which was hilarious to me. I don't think anyone else thought it was that funny because it was a lot of work to get that stuff built. And the director's always under pressure to get stuff done on time. And, um, but it just, when they rolled it up and it was like three inches too tall, that was like the best laugh I had had in a long time. I was going to take a picture of it and they yelled at me not to, because they didn't, 
they were afraid they were going to put it on social media and embarrass everybody or something. I just wanted it for myself. I, I thought it was fun. I didn't get mad at anybody or anything. I just thought it was all a good time. And then uh, we had another uh, huge camera crane. I don't know why for this shot, it was on such a big crane because it was lowered all the way down. Um, and it was the, um, ironically, it was the, uh, the prank episode. Um, and it was the shot where the hallway is full of balloons. And it starts on a, a close up of Gordimer and Ranger. And then the reveal is they're standing in a hallway full of balloons. So the, the camera pulls back really fast. And they pulled that big, heavy crane back really fast. And when you get a very heavy object moving very fast, it doesn't want to stop. <laughs> and it kept going. And it, it slammed hard into the back of the stage, um, which, again, I thought was hilarious, but other people were a little more um, concerned about that. But I, the director was, was pretty uh, nervous about that, but I, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, I would have. I would have laughed. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, make sure if there's anyone that was in the way, make sure they're okay, and then laugh. And then laugh. Yeah, I, there wasn't anybody standing back there. I don't. That's good. I don't think it was a little hard to tell under all the balloons. Somebody might have been under there, but uh, I think we would have heard a scream or a squeak or a squish or or something <laughs> if that had been the case. Um, no, it wasn't dangerous. It just went. It went on the path it was supposed to go. It just didn't stop before it arrived at its final destination. Or it did stop, but it stopped a little harder than I think they were expecting. If it had somehow blasted through the wall, that would have really been uh, a worthy anecdote. I might have to embellish this next time. I, I talk with people diving out of the way and punching a hole, a crane-shaped hole through the wall and and what have you. Oh, well, that's the best I can do. That's a good story. Yeah. Yeah. Those are good stories. So um my my sister said to to tell you number one, she's a huge fan. Um and she also said to ask, like, so how did you like some of the episodes are just kind of creepy. Like they're they're intentionally a little uneasy, right? For especially for for the the kids. And she was just want she wanted me to ask you kind of how you came up with that, how you got that approved, what how that how that whole process works it's uh i don't know how we got some things approved and other things that we didn't get approved i don't know why it was always a mystery to me so we just did whatever we wanted and then let amazon choose um i know there was an episode where we thought we'd have um uh gordimer's little brother get kidnapped by creatures on halloween and nice. um, eventually we decided maybe not to have a child kidnapping on the show because inevitably there would be like a real life kidnapping and it would just be, you know, it, it would just be very uncomfortable. It's something that could actually happen in, in real life and we didn't really want to go down that path. Um, I think we were going to have... Uh, um 
Gardner get aged up or something for the night and have Gortimer have to deal with like his big brother instead of his little brother. Um, there were a lot of very strange ideas that, that, that never, anything that relied too heavily on magic, like the magic in the show is very, in a way, is very subtle. Not always, but um, there's always just a slight little twist in life. Um, but whenever we got too heavy with the magic, like uh, I thought, uh, what if we have fairies? And right there, it's like Amazon's like, no, we're, we're not actually doing magical creatures. I was like, what if fairies put Ranger on trial for crimes against uh, Fairyland? And and then we we'd have like a weird idea like that and kick it around for a day in the writers' room. And then eventually, either we decide like we couldn't really make that um, fit in the context of the show, or Amazon would just be like, "What are you guys doing? Stop!" Um, but usually what we do is think, okay, what, you know, this is kind of, is the show about having friends and facing the world together and, and what are the, what's the conflict that's coming at them right now at this age when they're growing up. And so if it's something like, um, you know, it, it would be uh, have something to do with them um, coming of age. And then we'd be like, oh, what's a magical shortcut they might want to take? You know, uh, the Mind Eraser episode is like one of my favorites because you can look at it as a metaphor for, for almost any, any kind of unhealthy shortcut you want to take, whether that's like, uh, um, you know, a drug addiction is, is kind of what it looked like to me when it was on screen. Or whether it's just, you know, uh, trying to avoid responsibility for taking responsibility for your own actions, which is is a hard thing to learn when you're growing up and you're a kid and getting into trouble is like the worst thing that can happen to you. I don't want to be in trouble. Um, you do anything to avoid it. And eventually you find out it's just best to handle it head on. So usually we're dealing with like, what's the sort of magical version? What's the metaphor for these issues that you face when you're growing up and even though we we kind of it leads us down some funny paths sometimes some bizarre paths sometimes right. we never really set out to be weird or scary or dark or or any of those things it was just like how do we tell this tale on in this world where there's just like a, a temptation or or a little bit of magic it's kind of um Twilight Zone magic that sort of interested in teaching you a lesson or, or meeting out some justice. Um, hopefully too heavy handed, but um, that's kind of where we went with that. I, yeah, I, I definitely saw the Twilight Zone. It just, to me, it, again, I was, I was kind of older, so I'm sitting there like in a kid's show. Um, <laughs> and yeah, the, um, the bookmobile episode was originally my idea uh to and it, it transformed into something different but the twilight zone where the guy burgess meredith um uh finally has all the time he wants to read and then he breaks his glasses uh in the apocalypse and um i always thought that was cruel 
I thought of all the Twilight Zones, I thought that's just like really just a mean Twilight Zone. It didn't all it didn't fit with the rest of them to me. And I wanted to do kind of a sequel or an answer to that. Um, it eventually evolved into a very different show, but that's kind of where the bookmobile came from. Okay. So I, that's where we, the, our ideas evolve. That's, it was just always an interesting, like, honestly, obviously I'm a big fan of the show, but it was just always interesting to me that there were, that it, it really didn't feel like it was trying to speak down to, to children and trying to, to just be for kids. And I guess that's one of the reasons I was able to enjoy it as a, as a 13 year old who binge watched the show in like one night. Wow. From, like six to six. Um, like, oh, well, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, th- thank you. It's just a good show. Um, I guess, I guess this is a good kind of jumping point. So it, it the, like you mentioned before, the, the show kind of, I, I said matured, but it, it, the tonal shift between season two and two and a half and season the other half. Um, it, so like, how did, how did you decide you were going to do the the whole like Mel's mother dying and everything like that? Um, I think part of it was, you know, the characters have to go somewhere. Um, you can't just tread water, right? They're on a journey and they have to keep moving. Um, so as long as the show's going, you have to go, you end up going somewhere um, that's more challenging in a way um and i had wanted to sort of confront um death in the first season but i think it was too soon and i wanted to do it somewhat more metaphorically um rather than literally have someone die um but amazon had brought in another um executive producer who had had some experience with the subject so they were really ready to do it and i think our one of the executives at Amazon Studios um, had dealt with it as a younger person, um, uh, had lost a friend. So I, th- I think there was just some general um, sense that eventually that was going to be a topic we would touch on. It was more or less just waiting for the right moment. So like it, it, you're right to notice that it, it happened further down the line. It wouldn't have made sense to do it too soon, but it's not like we were deliberately trying to be dark or, or to age it up or, or whatever. It's just completely depends on the characters. And it was like, where are these characters now in their journey? What, what are they facing next? We've met them. We've spent some time with them. We know who these characters are. Um, we know who their parents are. So it'd be a lot more meaningful when something like that actually happens we'll feel more what they're feeling um and understand more what they're going through when they go through it um uh so that sort of came about just as a matter of timing and and character and also just having a general sense that eventually we were gonna um go there with that and then we also felt that One of my beefs with with TV is that, you know, especially episodic, is that something will happen and then you'll never hear about it again. It has like no mm-hmm. impact at all on 
the rest of the series, let alone the very next episode. It's like right. a complete reset. Um, and uh, I definitely didn't want to do that. I wanted characters to come back. We tried hard to bring back familiar faces to make it feel like a world, a real world and not just, you know, actors, uh, character actors of the week coming on and coming off set. Um, and we wanted Mel's to respect the idea of, of death by not just having one episode about it, but making it really part of her character now and, and part of a larger um, story arc in, in the whole series. We didn't want it to dominate endlessly. We wanted right. to see her incorporate that into her life and then to go on, right? go on living. So um, I was glad we were able to do that, to, to give it its due and not to forget it, um, but to address it and to, and to bring her to a, a good place with it. Yeah, it's, it's a very, it, it, it kind of teaches kids a very mature way of dealing with, with that death. Like I, I know personally, I, I lost a friend when I was 12, he died of brain cancer, but it, it was like, you know, like as a, as a kid, you don't really understand what that means and how to, how to deal with that. And you don't, and I, I don't know what your experience was, but did you, did you find that adults were, <sighs> I found when I was a kid that when it came to emotional, touchy emotional stuff, and I didn't have the experience of having a death, a close death, but um, you know, adults have more hangups about death. I think than kids do sometimes kids just need some need answers. And uh, as a preschool teacher, even, you know, parents are like, Oh God, you're going to read Charlotte's web, but the spider died. And I'm like, yeah, if you can't deal with a spider dying, how are you going to deal with life in general? Let them, let them experience a spider dying. Cause they're going to run into more than that um, in their life. And that's kind of what we wanted to do with, with Mel is that <clears throat> it's a safe place to, to have those experiences and talk about death um, before it actually happens and you have to deal with it. And also for the parents to practice too, um, because they have to deal with both what happened and they have to help guide a young person through that. And that's, so that's doubly hard. Yeah. Like I, I, I agree with you. I, so my, my friend, we weren't super close or anything like that. It was just, it, for me, it was very much that I don't, I, what, what happened, where, what happened to, where, where is he kind of thing. And I, I think like, as I've matured, I've, I've kind of seen like why adults act, act so weirdly about it, but um. Yeah, I just I always loved how how your show handled that and how it it was like it almost was the adult way of feeling childhood emotions, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, we we talked a lot about how we were going to approach it, and it was uh, it was um, you know we consulted a psychiatrist, and uh, it's not um, it was it was something we paid a lot of attention to. Yeah. But my general approach um, as a preschool teacher had always been, you know, dealing with kids in a very authentic way, even if it's just they're missing their mom. Um, I don't want to, there's teachers who 
life. I think they just had to be entertainers all the time. Let's distract the kids and make sure they're happy. Like Disney shows, you could have two emotions, happy and perky. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all you were allowed. Um, and my mission kind of became, you know, let's have more than two emotions on Gordimer and let's give everybody a chance to sort of experience the whole spectrum of life in a show. And it created almost like the the Pixar version of a Disney show. (laughs) Well, that's quite a compliment. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I guess really my, my other questions are are more like, so, so the way you ended it and the way, I mean, that, that last season was just a ride. Yeah, It was (laughs) just from, from death to all of a sudden, everyone is just leaving. Um, what made you decide to go there with it instead of just high school? The other um, thing that I really wanted to do was have a definite goodbye. I, I, there's so many like sequels and prequels and cycles and you, there's just no goodbye in television or movies. And I think that's something else that's important for kids. And that's probably something they deal with more than death or anything else is having to say goodbye. And I know for me, that was the big thing of my childhood at 12 years old is um, that was the worst thing that you could do to your friend was move away. And I moved away and it was devastating to me at 12 to move away from my friend. And I don't know if that's quite the same now with, you know, FaceTime and social media. I, I, I don't honestly know. Um, but at the time, if you moved away, you were gone. Um, and I wanted, that's just was another acknowledging um, the sort of authenticity of, of, of what kids go through and, and what it's like to say goodbye. I wanted them to say goodbye. I wasn't going to cheat that moment. We had never cheated any other moments. So this was going to be goodbye. And um, we really uh, overshot uh, quite a bit, I think, because the kids were not acting in the driveway when they were saying goodbye. It, It was hard for everyone. Everyone behind the camera was crying. Um, and everyone in front of the camera was crying. It was a very emotional day. But I was uh, really proud of the fact that we did that and that we pulled that off. It was a hard, I think it's harder, was a harder episode for people than the death of Mel's mom, maybe because it was uh, something that uh, people actually have experienced uh, more commonly than, than a death was having to say goodbye. And I didn't want to go to high school uh, with them uh, for the reasons I talked about before. I don't want to see the other worst thing you can do to your friend is just dump them for a girlfriend or a boyfriend or something, you know, to just um, become interested in, in romantic relationships and that, and those friendships start to change and evolve. And that's, that's just a whole nother different kind of thing. Yeah, that wasn't our show, and I would have no idea how to write anyway, and I wasn't interested. That's the rest of life, 
I didn't want to do the whole rest of life. I wanted to do those, those three, those three years in, in middle grade where you're sort of in that transition. To me, that's where the real power of storytelling is anyway, when you're sort of caught between two worlds. That provides a lot of the uh, narrative juice for a good story. So that's where I wanted to focus them on. Yeah, I, it, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I, I just had always, like, as, as a fan, I had always just yeah. sat there like, why, why, why did it have to end? Yes. Why, why not just leave it open-ended? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, this, that might be one of my favorite things about the show, looking back. I mean, at the time, I was a 13-year-old boy who was sitting at 6 o'clock in the morning in tears. But, um, like, looking back, I'm like, that was, like, almost, it almost doesn't belong in, like, child television even though the show isn't for children but like mark it almost doesn't belong in a show marketed for children if that makes sense it does make sense because you're not used to to seeing that sort of thing offered to kids um and usually when you do it's a very you know a very special episode uh of issue television and that's also not something we were trying to be um we were just trying to be a little literate um, and authentic. We weren't trying to be, uh, you know, address issues necessarily. Um, but that's, yeah, I, I get that a lot. It's it, it was hard for people to accept an ending. The other thing I like is that, you know, I don't know if you ever read Calvin and Hobbes, so, mm -hmm. um, but that was a fantastic um, cartoon that that ended. It was like 10 great years of Calvin and Hobbes. And for no reason anyone could understand, the guy just stopped. I mean, I understood it, but he really went out on top. But the last panel of that um, is sort of this big, wide open space. And Calvin's like, it's a, it's a beautiful world. Let's go exploring. And then there's just all this white space. And to me, that was like the perfect ending. And especially for something kid oriented. And that's kind of what I wanted with the show was Gordimer driving off into a new adventure, except we're leaving that white space for the audience. Now it's not my show anymore. Now it's your show. Now it's everyone else's show. Now Gordimer lives in your imagination. He's not mine anymore. And I like that idea of sort of handing that off and leaving that space open for other people. And I, I'm sure people watching it, like, don't immediately go, oh, I see. He's giving us this chance to have our own imagination and our own adventures with Gordimer and to, to let him live in our hearts. And, you know, I, I, I know that's not like exactly what people are taking away from it. But I think I like to think, there's a huge difference with the way it ended and what it would have been if we had kept going. And then we'd have a different conversation about why didn't you stop when it was good? Why, yeah. why did you drag it into the ground like that? There would have been a shark jumping episode. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No sharks allowed. I, I think that's what made it so memorable though, that it just, that it ended and right. it, it, yeah I, I i agree i just i like i said i just was always curious 
um, as, as a side note, Grant says his internet has just completely died and has asked me to kind of wrap Grant. it up. We miss I, yeah. you, Grant. I feel like yes, I hardly Grant. knew you. <laughs> he said like three words <laughs> and <then> just left. <laughs> I felt bad for talking over him, but apparently his internet just doesn't want him to speak. Um, yeah. So you've you've done other like another project since Gordimer, right? Um, with Netflix. Uh, after Gordimer, I um, was asked to come on board a show called Glitch Tax, which was being uh, uh, produced at Nickelodeon um, at the time, and that was oh my gosh, I had never done animation before. That was a blast. That was some really good fun people involved in that. It was a lot of great energy. And um, I came in after a lot of development had been done and they were still working out the, the world of the show and the characters. Um, and they just were having like a, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, some kind of uh, meeting of minds, like a think tank, like a, a retreat um, with just a bunch of people they pulled together in the gaming industry and writers and people kind of related to the idea of the show. And we just all met in this hotel for two days um, and just had this really creative, fun session where we talked about gaming and kids and just all these creative things and just pitch story ideas around. And um, that was just such a good time. And the, the two guys who were co-creators of the show Dan Milano and Eric Robles uh, were just the sweetest, absolute most wonderful people in the world. And I'm very lucky that way. Um, and, you know, you always hear horror stories about people in Hollywood. I'm sure most of them are true, but um, these guys were fantastic. Such a pleasure to work with them. So I felt very lucky uh, to get involved in that. And so after the retreat that happened over the summer, I came on board in the fall um, as a staff writer and um, I was only there for a short time for like 20 weeks or so, um, but kind of helped get uh, the show rolling and, and um, sort of define, help, help define the world and some of the characters. And it's just um, a really fast paced, fun, incredibly well animated uh, show that um uh, is on Netflix now because for some reason Nickelodeon decided to sit on it uh, for like two years. Um, they, they, I think they were having a lot of turnover and they were trying to figure out their strategy. And <clears throat> they're basically like the SpongeBob network. Uh, you know, it's hard for them to find a place uh, to, to roll the dice on on a new show, I guess. So. Sorry, I bought my microphone here. Here, let me, let me fix it. Uh, um, but actually, it went to Netflix, which I was glad because uh, it gave every, it, it gave it a platform where it can live forever. Um, and um, and it had two seasons. It's another one where I still hear, you know, where people it ended too soon, and and people would like it to go on, and that I had nothing to do with the end of that uh, that kind of got cut short by by nickelodeon so that's a legitimate um beef that people have um or a, a legitimate beef that you can have if you want if you want more of that show 
you can you can go yell at Nickelodeon. <laughs> you can go yell at Nickelodeon. Um, you can do that. So that was a lot of fun, but it was it was a little short lived. Um, yeah, and so now, um, I've decided that I really enjoy uh, having uh, creative control of my work. You have to give that up a little bit when not a little bit, a lot when you're working in television, you don't own the show. The network does, right. uh, um, you know, a quarter, not mine. It belongs to Amazon. Um, mm-hmm. And I would um, rather own my own creation basically. So I've shifted gears into writing prose and I'm working on novels and I just had a short, not a short story, a novelette published Um and that's kind of the direction I'm heading in right now. And I'm really enjoying that because I get read that novelette. It's uh, it's online. It's free to read. It's uh, called anything short of death is survivable. That's a kind of a hard science fiction um, story. And it sounds I, like a bit of a pivot from Gordimer. It is. You'll have to, you'll have to read it and tell me if it's, it's uh, part of uh if it's very anexagorian or not, if, if you see it being part of uh, part of my works or if it's a total turn, um, it's definitely a different world. Um, but there might there might be some, you know, threads or themes or or something in common. I don't know. Uh, it all feels the same to me when I'm writing it. I never really felt like, OK, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to put a completely different mask on and, and write something else now. Um, it's just story and characters and something usually that I'm feeling <clears throat> something that I've got to say. Okay. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it and I'll, it, I'll link that in, in the episode description for anyone there right. listening. Um, yeah. I'll, I think it's the first link in my, I think it's pinned in my uh, Twitter Okay. I don't know if you. I, I don't know if you know where that is, or I'll just. Send, I, I, I'll send you the link or something. Yes, I, I I follow you on Twitter. Actually, I have a I have a bit of a, a fun story. So what, right after I watched Gordimer, I decided I was going to be the next David and Axagoras, oh, no. right? <laughs> and so I, I wrote I wrote like a mini Bible, and I like was pitching it to Amazon, and actually I like reached out for you to uh, to you for help on Twitter, like with like a burner account. And I remember at like 1130 at night, you had like responded and had you like actually helped me write it. And I, like, I never forgot that. And um, the show obviously didn't get picked up, Aww. but it was, yeah. Well, I'm so glad that I wasn't a jerk to you. <laughs> I was waiting. I was like, oh no, where did this anecdote go? Did he catch me at a good moment or a bad moment? Um, I try to be a helpful guy. So I, I'm glad uh, you caught me at a good time. Um, that's nice to hear. I'm, I'm glad you did that. I am too. It just like completely like, I'm like, whoa, these, they're actual people on the internet. <laughs> it was, it was weird times for 13 year old Grant. Uh, yeah. Well, um, I don't, I think I've kind of exhausted my questions. This is usually where I would bounce them to Grant, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't really. That's slacking off, man. Yeah. He's taking a nap. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Now he's going to have uh, FOMO. He's going to have serious. He missed out, man. Yeah. You'll have to tell him that there's a part that we didn't record. We just went on and on for hours. 
It was a whole party. Just days. Just yeah. it was it, it was a week we wrote three television shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. Well, I will go ahead and I guess in the recording there. Is there anything else you want to plug? Do you want to tell people where to find you? Um uh, like I am very active on Twitter. So if you want to come at David and Exagoras, if you want to come and join the party, um that's that's probably where I'm most active. I've got a website and stuff, but you know, it's just basically a landing page. Twitter's where the party's All right. at. All right. Yeah, everybody go follow him there. I can I can tell you there is a party going on. <laughs> um yeah. Well, as always, for Grant, I've been Grant, and thank you so much, Mr. Anaxagoras, Dave, for, for coming on. My pleasure.